0: Chapter Eight of Serapion by Francis Stevens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Serapion, Chapter Eight Four Hundred Dollars. Nils Berquist had his own ways, and whether or not they were practical or customary to mankind at large influenced him in no degree. He called himself a socialist, but in pure fact he was one of those persons who required a cause to fight for and argue about, as a hedonist craves his pleasures or the average man an income. Real socialism, with the communal interests it applies, was foreign to Burquist's very nature. He could get along, in a withdrawn kind of way, with almost anyone. He would share what small possessions he had with literally anyone. But his interest went to such abstractions of thought as were talked and written by men of his own kind, while himself, his mind, he kept for the very few. These are the qualities of an aristocrat, not a socialist. One result of his paradoxical attitude showed in the fact that when it came to current news Nils was as ignorant a man as you could meet in a day's walk. My various troubles and activities had kept me from thinking of him, but when I again happened on Nils in town one evening it hurt my feelings to discover that the spectacular downfall of Barber and Hutchinson might have occurred on another planet so far as he was concerned. News that had been blazoned in every paper was news to him all this time afterward. Even learning it from me in person, he said little, though this silence might have been caused by embarrassment. Roberta was with me, and to tie Nils's tongue you had only to lead him into the presence of femininity in the person of a young pretty girl. I at last recalled the fact, and because, for a certain reason, I wished a chance to talk with him where he could talk, I asked if he couldn't run out some night and have dinner with us. Cathy's cooking was nothing wonderful, but I knew Nils wouldn't mind that, nor the cramped quarters we had to live in. I reckoned on taking him up to my own room later for a private confab. After a short hesitation he accepted. "'You take care of yourself, Clay,' he added. "'You're looking pale, run down. Don't tell me you've been laid up sick along with all this other trouble.' "'No, indeed, old man.' working rather harder than I used and, lately, I haven't slept very well. Bad dreams. But aside from that, nothing serious." After a few more words we parted, he striding off on his lonely way to some born unknown, Roberta and I proceeding toward the motion-picture theatre that we tried to enjoy like a real playhouse. As if misery had altered the Charlestonian viewpoint, Mrs. Whittingfield had relaxed her chaperonage and let us go alone almost wherever we liked, or where my diminished pocket-fund afforded to take us. A fortnight had passed since the strange face had made its first appearance. If Nils thought I looked pale, there was reason for it. Bad dreams, I had told him, but bad dreams were less than all. My resolve to visit a doctor had come to nothing. I had called, indeed, upon our family physician, as I had met. The moment I entered his presence, however, that instinct for concealment which had prevented me from confiding in Roberta or my family rose up full strength. The symptoms I actually laid before Dr. Lloyd produced a smile and a prescription that might as well have been the traditional bread pills. I didn't bother to have it filled. I went out as alone with my secret as when I entered. A face, boyish in manner, pleasant, half-smiling usually, with an amused slyness to the clear, light-blue eyes, an agreeable inward quirk at the corners of the finely cut lips. I had come to know every liniment intimately well. It had not returned again until some time after the first appearance. Then, at the bank, the afternoon following my futile conference with Dr. Lloyd, I happened to close my eyes, and it was there, behind the lids. There was a table in Mr. Turn's office, over which he used to spread out his correspondence and papers. I was seated at one side of the table, and he on the other, and I started so violently that he dropped his pen and made a straggling ink-feather across the schedule of securities he was verifying. He patiently blotted it, and I made such a fuss over getting out the ink-eradicator and restoring the sheet of minutely-figured ledger-paper to neatness, that he forgot to ask what had made me jump in the first place. After that the face was with me so often that if I shut my eyes and saw nothing its absence bothered me. I would feel then that the face had got behind me, perhaps, and acquired the bad habit of casting furtive glances over my shoulder. You may think that if one must be burdened with a companion invisible to the world, such a good-humoured countenance as I have described would be the least disagreeable, but that was not so. There was to me a subtle hatefulness about it, like a thing beautiful and at the same time vile, which one hates in fear of coming to love it. I never called the face him, never thought of it as a man, nor gave it a man's name, I was afraid to. As if recognition would lend the vision power. I called it the fifth presence and hated it. As the days of this passed there came a time when the face began trying to talk to me. There at least I had the advantage. Though I could see the lips move, forming words, by merely opening my eyes I was able to banish it, and so avoid learning what it wished to say. In bed, I used to lie with my eyes wide open, sometimes for hours, waiting for sleep to come suddenly. When that happened, I was safe, for though my dreams were often bad, the face never invaded them. I discovered, too, that the name Serapion had, in a measure, lost power to throw me off balance, since the face had come. My mother continued to harp on the superiority of my dead uncle's character. And how he would have shielded us from the evils that had befallen, until dad acquiesced in sheer self protection. But though I didn't like to hear her talk of him, and though the sound of the name invariably quickened my heartbeat, hearing neither increased nor diminished the vision's vividness. It was with me, however, through most of my waking hours, waiting behind my lids, and if I looked pale, as Nils said, the wonder is that I was able to appear at all as usual. So I wished to talk with Nils, hoping that to the man who had warned me against the moors I could force myself to confide the distressing aftermath of my visit at the dead-alive house. He had promised to come out the next night but one, which was Wednesday. Unfortunately, however, I missed seeing him then, after all, and because of an incident whose climax was to give the fifth presence a new and unexpected significance. About two-thirty Wednesday afternoon I ran up the steps of the Colossus Trust, and, at the top, collided squarely with Van, Jr. By the slight reel with which he staggered against a pillar and caught hold of it. I knew that Van had been hitting the high spots again, and hoped he had not been interviewing his father in that condition. On recovering his balance, Van stood up steady enough. "'Old Scott Clay! Say, you look like a pale, pallid, piffling, freshwater clam you do. Upon my word, I'm ashamed of the old colossus. The old brass idol has sucked all the blood out of you my fault serving up the best friend I ever had as a helpless sacrifice to the governor's old brass colossus. Come on with me. You've been good too long." He playfully pretended to tear off the brass-lettered name of the trust company, which adorned the wall beside him, cast it down and trample on it. When I tried to pass, he caught my arm. "'Come on!' "'Can't!' I explained quietly mr turn was the best man at a wedding today but he left me a stack of work van sniffed huh i know that wedding i was invited to that wedding but i wouldn't go measly old prohibition wedding just suits fatty turn when you get married clay i'll send along about 11 magnums for a wedding present and then i'll come to your wedding you may, when it happens. Again I tried to pass him. Wait a minute, you poor pallid work-slave, you know what I'm going to do for you. Get me fired by present prospects. I must—you must not. Just listen. You know Barney Finn—' Not personally. Let me go now, Van, and I'll see you later.' "'Barney Finn,' he persisted doggedly, has got just the biggest little engine that ever slid around a track. Now you wait a minute. Barney's another friend of mine. Told me all about it. Showed it to me. Show me how it's going to make every other wagon at Fairview tomorrow look like a hand-pushed per-perambulator. All right. Come around after the race and tell me how Finn made out. Please. Wait. You're my friend, Clay, and I like you. You put a thousand bones on Finney's car and say good-bye to old Colossus. Start a bank of your own. How's that, huh?" I laughed. "'Bet on it yourself, Van, and let me alone. I've forgotten what a thousand dollars looks like.' "'No place for you round old Colossus, then. Say, boy, if you think me too squiffy to whist whereof I speak... You misjudge me sadly, yes, indeed, didn't I rest one pitiful sentry from Colossus five minutes ago, and isn't that the last that stood between me and starvation, and ain't I going right out and plaster that sentry on Finn's car? Would I im impoverish the Colossus and me, putting that last sentry on anything but a sure win? Come across, boy. Now one might think that Van's invitation lacked attractiveness to a sober man. I happen to know, however, that drunk or sober his judgment was good on one subject, the same being motor-cars. Barney Finn, moreover, was a speed-track veteran with a mighty reputation at his back. He had, in the previous year, met several defeats, due to bad luck in my opinion, but they had brought up the odds if he had something particularly good and new in his car for tomorrow's race at Fairview, there was a chance for somebody to make a killing, as Van said. "'What odds?' I queried. "'For each little bone you plant, twelve little bones will blossom. Good enough? I could get better, but this will be off Jackie Rosenblatt, and you know that little Jew's a regular old colossus's own self. Solid and square.' hock his old high-silk hat before he'd welch. Yes, rosy square. I did some quick mental figuring, and then pulled a thin sheaf of bills from an inner coat-pocket. Instantly Van had snatched them out of my hand. Not all! I exclaimed sharply. Take fifty! But I brought that in to deposit. Deposit it with Jackie! Why, you old miser with your bank account! Four entire centuries! And you weepin' over poverty? Say, Clay, how much is twelve times four? Forty-eight. But lightning calculator! He admired. Say, doesn't forty-eight hundred make a bigger noise in your delicate ear than four measly centuries? Come across. I don't think I nodded. I am almost sure that I had begun reaching my hand to take all or most of the bills back, but Van thought otherwise. Right, boy. With plunging abruptness he was off down the steps. I hesitated. Forty-four hundred. Then I caught myself and was after him, but too late. His speedy grey roadster was already nosing recklessly into the traffic. Before I reached the bottom step it had shot around the corner and was gone. End of chapter 8